Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Damon Linger of the Week, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Eugene Volokh. Gary T. Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA and founder of the legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy. Professor Volokh is the author of a textbook on the First Amendment and many law review articles, an immigrant from the USSR at age seven. He graduated from UCLA with a degree in math and computer science at the age of 15. Professor Volokh will be sitting out the first segment uh, and joining us later in the program, and we want to jump right in with the momentous news of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, it was a um, arguably a momentous moment uh, in American history. It's very, very difficult to get a conviction uh, of a police officer. So, Damon, I'm going to start with you. Um, is this possibly a unifying moment? The polls show that the vast majority of Americans believe this was the correct verdict. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, but, you know, as the kind of jaded cynic I am, I'll say uh, I'll believe it when I see it. And by see it, that means more than the first couple of days after the verdict. Uh, and the main reason why I'm a little skeptical in the longer term is because, as is a, a frequent theme on this podcast, uh, the right has decided that its interests lie in uh, denying the justice of the verdict and seeing this as some kind of a triumph of left-wing mob rule. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll be able to tell within the next week or so if the right backs off that narrative because they're seeing from their constituents and then polling that this actually is not helping them. But if you watched uh, Tucker Carlson this, uh, this week, of course, the big star now on Fox News, and, and gauged, you know, the, the statements of lots of Republicans, uh, what we saw this week was was um, a travesty uh, that this poor police officer who was uh, doing his duty with uh, with a, 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 a criminal who had taken a, a fatal dose of drugs and was bound to die anyway any minute and uh, he's now unjustly been railroaded because of those terrible far-left uh, destructive protests last summer, combined with uh, statements of uh, Joe Biden and Maxine Waters, which I should add uh, I didn't think were the best move. Waters especially, I think, was, was totally outrageous in some of the things she was saying before the jury was sequestered for deliberations. Biden's statement uh, also kind of coming out before the verdict to say, in effect, what he thought the proper verdict should be was also unusual and not a, a great idea, civically speaking. But, uh, you know, clearly Biden's comments, which were made while the jury was sequestered, had no effect on the outcome. And Waters, I'm sure, didn't have much of an impact either, though uh, we may hear from them again uh, on appeal for Chauvin. But in, in the end, we're, we're dealing with another iteration of the same story that we see these days, that the Republican Party has decided that its interests lie in always seeking division, always ending up on the opposite side of whatever the center left and left think, even when it concerns a matter of of deep injustice that most Americans recognized the moment they saw that video of Chauvin kneeling on uh, George Floyd's neck 11 months ago. So, again, I hope that you're right, and this is a cause for hope, but I'm, uh, I'm concerned that, uh, that that might be a little naive to, to think so. Uh, Linda, following up on Damon's points, um you know, some of the responses on the right have been just uh, really remarkably cruel and also fact-free. So you had Scott Adams, who was one of the chief Trump 
defenders uh, saying there's a fine line between justice and human sacrifice. The obvious implication here being that uh, the Chauvin was the was the human sacrifice here to appease the mob. Um, and uh, another one tweeted, George Floyd's death will go down as the most consequential drug overdose in history. Um, in point of fact, the issue of Floyd's drug use came up and was, de- you know, was uh, was debunked. Uh, not that he used drugs, but that it caused his death uh, very thoroughly during the trial. Um, these comments, uh, and especially those on on Fox News that have so much coverage, you know, they they dealt with uh, an alt as as the Trump people would put it, alternate facts. Uh, They certainly uh, do. I mean, it's really, there are two universes now, Mona. Uh, We live in a universe uh, of people who get their news exclusively through Fox News Channel, OAN, uh, and Newsmax. um, And they live in a world in which they saw virtually none of the trial. Uh, They don't read articles that uh, actually deal with what the medical examiners found, what various experts said. Um, They simply hear this um, drumbeat of, um, you know, defense uh, for uh, Detective Chauvin, who showed no remorse did something that I think all of us could see with our own eyes. I mean, we're talking about nine and a half minutes of a man who has his knee on uh, the victim's neck. Uh, The victim is pleading, saying he can't breathe. He's clearly in distress. And uh, there are bystanders around, including police. And, you know, this trial uh, was just one of several trials that will be held because some of the officers who stood around and did nothing to try to come to uh, George Floyd's aid uh, will also have to uh, face a court of law. But if but if all you're hearing is the Fox News Tucker Carlson story then um, you believe that this uh, police officer has been railroaded. And I think that's really, um, I think it's really scary because this is a deeply race-driven narrative. It is the innocent white police officer against the big, scary, uh, drug-addicted black man uh, who is just by virtue of being those things a criminal in the uh, eyes of, of of the people who watch these shows, and it's um, it is a an old narrative. I mean, these are the kinds of um, incidents that in the past uh, were used to justify lynching. Uh, it, it's really deeply disturbing that there is a portion of the population who is getting this very distorted view of the world and not seeking any uh, alternative explanation and not using their own eyes. I mean, that nine-and-a-half-minute film taken by a young teenage girl uh, who recorded it all is available, widely available for anyone to watch. And it is very difficult to watch, but apparently... Tucker Carlson doesn't think so. Um, yeah, that that's that's um, true. And 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 uh, look, people. Sometimes you can sort of sympathize with people who are getting only one side of the story and think, well, you know, it's not their fault; they're misinformed. You know, it's the fault of Fox News or whatever for misinforming them. But you know, in this case, I actually do think that people who seek out. A, a narrative to erase what their eyes saw are culpable too, right? I mean, there are times when you just have to say, you know what, this was so obvious. Anyway, let's let's move to um, let's 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 move to Bill Galston because there are moves now for reform on the uh, as a consequence of this. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the Congress uh, passed the House in March. Uh, it would do a number of things, ban chokeholds and carotid holds, increase police training. I want to talk about police training for a minute, uh, Bill, because, um, you know, it's amazing. When you look at the, the um, police departments on average require officers in the United States to complete 672 hours 
of basic training before joining the force. To become a barber in many jurisdictions, a person must go through 1,300 hours of training, uh, according to data from the uh, Institute of Justice License to Work study. Uh, is, is that one of the areas that, uh, that we need to improve? Uh, well, sure it is. It is. It's hard to look not just at the George Floyd case, but all of the cases we've been reading about without, uh, without coming to believe that police are not adequately trained in techniques of de-escalation, mm -hmm. uh, something on which Senator Tim Scott has, you know, uh, has had a lot to say, or other forms of violence avoidance. Uh, it appears often that the resort to force is the first resort and not the last resort. Uh, it appears that in many cases, uh, the police are more interested in defending themselves than they are in avoiding unnecessary harm either to innocent bystanders or to the alleged perpetrator. Uh, when I was in the military, the training I received uh, in, included, uh, as a, a point I think I made last week, you know, in, included the fact that I was sometimes precluded from adopting tactics that would maximize my chances of surviving with my life without in injury in deference to the interests of others who might be caught up in the combat. Uh, so this is one of many areas where we need fundamental reform. And let me just make let me just make a broader point about this moment. Uh, we can argue forever about how, how this verdict is being received and interpreted in different quarters. The fundamental question is what we do to change laws, structures, and institutions. We have a moment now, a uh, point that both Karen Bass negotiating for the House Democrats and Tim Scott negotiating on behalf of the Senate Republicans have made in the past 48 hours. If we're serious about making progress, we will get to yes on a compromise version uh, of the kind of bill that Senator Scott championed uh, last year and has reintroduced and the kind and the George Floyd bill, which has passed the House of Representatives. And this is a time for the President of the United States to show that he means business about bringing the country together. Because if this moment passes with no legislation agreed on and enacted, I think it will be a colossal system failure, and some of the fault uh, will be attached to the President. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I would just add that some of the things that are under consideration uh, are ending qualified immunity, um, reducing the legal standard of liability from willfulness to recklessness, um, providing a national registry for bad cops. This could be so important because very often cops have moved from one jurisdiction to another and the, the new people do not know uh, about their history, and that is kept private. So these things could all um, be important. And also reducing the levels of military-grade equipment that so many police departments have taken to using. It's um, very psychologically unhealthy, it seems to me, for a democracy to have its cops outfitted like commandos. Well, the good news is uh, that... Uh... <laughs> Senator Scott is actually quite upbeat about the prospects of negotiating compromises on all of the outstanding issues, which he says are only four or five at this point, suggesting that agreement between Democratic and Republican negotiators has been reached on most of the items you just mentioned. Not qualified immunity, because that's the toughest one, mm -hmm. but many of the others. 
which is really actually i mean that's we should we should exhale here and say this is a this is a moment i mean we've had such a despair about the possibility of bipartisanship on any subject and this is a fairly fraught one and if we can reach it that would be that would be tremendous um all right uh, let us now turn to our second topic of the day which is the um the view on the right that we're seeing that we need to change our um libel laws and that we need to change our standards about uh, the freedom of the press um both Justice Thomas um, and uh, appeals court judge Larry Silverman have offered that they believe New York Times v. Sullivan, which is sort of the backbone of protections against uh, pub- uh, for the press against public figures suing them for libel, um, ought to be reconsidered or or even overturned, um, and. Uh, Justice uh, Judge Silberman went so far as to call the current construction of the press a threat to American democracy. Um, so I'd like to welcome Eugene Volokh and, and ask you, um, what do you make of this? And is this a departure uh, for these conservatives from their traditional views on these matters? Uh, no, uh, this is actually part of a longstanding view not just among conservatives, that uh, uh, the right to reputation, the right not to have your reputation damaged by falsehoods is an important part of personal dignity, also an important part of uh, stopping fake news, of making sure that the public debate is based on uh, on, uh, accurate statements, uh, and that uh, that can coexist with with, um, the freedom of the press, as it has throughout American history, with some degree of uh, uh, protection for the press, but also some degree of recovery for plaintiffs. Now, I actually don't quite agree with Justice Thomas and Judge Silberman uh, that the that the current rule should be changed. But it is a very traditional approach. I will tell you the most prominent advocate of cutting back on New York Times v. Sullivan uh, on the Supreme Court was not a conservative judge. It was Justice Byron White, who was long, he was a Kennedy appointee, but long seen as a centrist on the court. And he, in case after case, said, look, New York Times v. Sullivan, which he actually joined uh, when it first came down and he was a very um, new justice, uh, went too far. That by saying that you can own the public officials and then extend it to public figures who might not be government employees at all, um, uh, that by saying that they can only recover for libel basically over deliberate lies, not over negligent falsehoods, however negligent, that that was going too far and under-protecting pub- um, uh, honest public debate and under-protecting uh, reputation. Again, I, I actually think that where the court has ended up uh, is probably, you know, better than the alternatives. Like what they say about democracy, what Churchill said about democracy, it's the worst possible system except for the alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I think the position that Justice Thomas and Judge Silberman and before them, Justice White and some other conservative justices, Berger and Rehnquist at Times, for example, uh, took uh, uh, is a perfectly plausible position because you have to consider a reputation and protection against uh, against uh, f- uh, injuries to reputation as well as freedom of the press. Let me, let me ask you a little bit about the um, the public figure aspect of this because it strikes me I'm followed the law closely, but it, it does seem to me that the definition of who is a public figure has really expanded so that everyone is saying, for example, that now Dominion voting systems would who you know uh, experience libel and slander during the. Uh, uh, post-election period and uh, and Smartmatic, that these are public figures because why? Because they provide a public good or something, but they're not public officials for sure. And um, what, what do you make of that? Well, so New York Times v. Sullivan was a lawsuit brought by Sullivan, who was a government official, um, a low-level, excuse me, an official at a local government, but still a relatively high-level official within that government. But then, pretty quickly, the court extended that. Uh, this uh, New York Times v. Sullivan was in 1964. Within the next few years, the court extended that to so-called public figures. Uh, and then eventually, even to so-called limited-purpose public figures, who are people who are otherwise private people but just get involved in some debate. So there are basically four ways you can become uh, a public figure. And again, the important thing about a public figure uh, is that you can't uh, recover 
for, for even for damage to your reputation from falsehoods unless they're deliberate lies. Uh, merely showing negligence isn't enough. So there are four ways of uh, being a public figure. One is being a public official, which is basically a government employee at a high up enough level. Another is achieving pervasive fame and notoriety. Uh, so that could be uh, LeBron James, let's say, as a public figure. Everybody knows his name. Uh, another is assuming an influential role in ordering society. So maybe some kind of titans of business, uh, not just the ones whom, who are also pervasively famous like Bill Gates, let's say, or Mark Zuckerberg, but also uh, maybe, uh, maybe Larry Ellison, who I think runs, I wanna, I wanna say runs uh, um, Oracle, uh, and maybe not as well known, but maybe quite influential. And I would think that big corporations, especially ones, uh, either big corporations or corporations that are involved in providing essential government functions, like election services, I think they would qualify as having an influential role in an ordering society. And then there are limited purpose public figures. Somebody gets involved in some debate about some local controversy. And then they become a public figure for purposes of statements related to that debate. So even an ordinary citizen can become a public figure if that person chooses to get involved in, uh, in public life. And then people start making accusations about, uh, uh, about that person that are relevant to his involvement. So um, does that mean, uh, that last category, does that mean that if someone libels you and you have not before been uh, uh, involved in public affairs or public life and you defend yourself, you then are a limited purpose public, affair, public official or, you know, or a public figure? Generally speaking, no. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, courts say that there's got your involvement has to predate the this uh, 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 this alleged libel. On the other hand, I suppose if you defend yourself and then go further and then start saying uh, saying, oh well, not only are the original statements against me false, here are the bad things about the person who has uh, who has said them. Then you might be starting up a new debate about the qualities of that person, and then right. they could, could, so, could retaliate. And what's your view about Dominion and Smartmatic? Do you think they will be declared public figures? You know, I haven't followed the briefing here, but my, my first reaction is uh, if you want to look for an organization that has assumed an influential role in ordering society, I would think an organization that is providing uh, election services would be a public figure. Uh, now, note, by the way, you could imagine a situation where libel law only protects individuals. Uh, because of the because that's seen as sort of central to human dignity, but corporations, if it's an impersonal criticism, may be bad for their bottom line. But you might say uh, say uh, that that shouldn't matter. Now, as it happens, our legal rule is that corporations have the same right to be free from libel as individuals. Though interestingly, government entities, the federal government, state governments, local governments, public universities, Indian tribes, uh, those cannot sue for libel because they're seen as as it's kind of uh, uh, important enough that people should be free to say anything at all about them, including deliberate lies. Uh, but in any event, corporations under our law can sue for defamation. But I do think that courts are going to be more open to finding a corporation like that to be a public figure uh, than an individual, in part, again, because these concerns about the, per the special dignitary interests uh, of individuals are less present with corporations. Linda, do you think that uh, free and robust debate in a, in a democratic society requires a rule um, that you can only be punished for libel uh, if, it's a, if it's outright malice, if it's, uh, if it's outright lies that you knew to be lies and not, um, not reckless, uh, reckless flinging of accusations, because that's what we've been living under. Well, and, and I frankly think it's worked reasonably well. I mean, what I find interesting about this whole debate, believe me, those who are wanting to see uh, New York Times versus Sullivan overturned are not there because um, they, um, you know, want to have Dominion uh, Corporation be able to sue uh, because it was uh, defamed by uh, Trump and his and his allies. They're they're certainly not thinking in those terms, and you know I, I think this whole debate, frankly, what has been 
troubling to me about it, and, and particularly troubling in terms of Judge Silberman, who's somebody I have long respected. I think he's played a very important role in conservative intellectual circles. But he went on a real tirade about the liberal media that I think is inappropriate for a sitting judge, uh, that does not help uh, the cause that he is uh, advocating for. And it looks like he has, you know, uh, a horse in this horse race uh, rather than that he's simply being impartial and talking about the law and uh, what can, you know, what can best serve um Democracy. I mean, for him to claim that there is such incredible liberal media bias, let's, you know, set the record straight. Yes, there is liberal media bias. I think all of us uh, on this panel could agree that the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, all tilt center left. But there are huge audiences, as we were just discussing, for uh, news organizations that tilt center-right uh, or even far-right. And so, I, you know, for him to, to act as if that universe doesn't exist and hasn't um, in, in many ways uh, counterbalanced the influence of the so-called liberal media in this day and age where you can pick and choose what source you want to get your information from based on your own ideological uh, leanings. I don't think uh, that, you know, that, that he can claim that somehow the liberal media has a stranglehold on democracy. So I thought that was very unhelpful and even unhelpful to his own cause. I mean, there may be, as, as uh, Gene Volokh has just suggested, there may be some uh, reasons that you, we might want to take a look at libel laws and, and uh, adjust them. Uh, but I don't think that Larry Silberman gave a, a very good uh, argument in favor of that in the way in which he approached it. Bill Galston, um, it does seem that, that Larry Silberman was, um, was riding this, this hobby horse, really, um, because um, he, he talked about the, the, this, the, the um, dominance of liberal media as a threat to American democracy. And he went on to blast the New York Times and the Washington Post as Democratic Party broadsheets or virtually Democratic Party broadsheets. And uh, he said, you know, nearly all of the press leans to the left, which, of course, is in terms of reach is not quite right anymore. It's a little bit outdated. Uh, but he, he went on in this vein. Do you think that the um, you know, it, it just strikes me that um, that altering libel law uh, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, would have very little effect on the complexion of the press. Don't you agree? <clears throat> I do agree because we're in the grips of a larger problem, which I think explains why this particular controversy has surfaced now. And that is something we've discussed many times before, <clears throat> the collapse of media gatekeepers all around. Uh, and uh, that is true, unfortunately, for larger news organizations as well as for, uh, for smaller ones, more eccentric ones, individual bloggers, etc. Uh, I'm afraid that editors are letting through uncorroborated statements that never would have passed editorial muster 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and many more false things are being said by many more people than was the case uh, when, when I was younger. I'm convinced of that. And, uh, and so if there aren't gatekeepers within media organizations, there's naturally going to be pressure uh, to expand protections for individuals in other ways, including the framework of, of, of libel laws. I am not saying that it would necessarily be a good idea to do that, but I think we have to begin by understanding why we're having this conversation right now in this way. Although I can't go into details, you know, I've been I've been dealing very very closely uh, in recent weeks uh, with with someone 
who has arguably been libeled by people who had the responsibility uh, to get it right and either negligently or deliberately did not. I mean, this is this is a big problem. And mm -hmm. when I look when I look at people who've been on the receiving ends of this, I really say, boy, there but but for the grace of God, go I, uh, because you know if some of my columns in the Wall Street Journal uh, offended people who were determined to damage me personally in response, they could do so. What recourse would I have? You know, Houston, we have a problem. I don't know how to solve it, but we have a problem. Damon, um, w one of the things that you know strikes me as I read um, Judge Silberman's uh, dissent is that you know for many years I shared his views completely about the bias of the press and all of that. I mean, I, I think it was um, undeniable that that the majority of the sort of mainstream, old-line, um, major news organizations leaned to the left, or at least center-left, and uh, that there was definite bias in the way they framed things. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's amazing to me to see that they just ignore the fact, uh, that is, Silberman did, and virtually did, and, and Thomas too, that there has grown up in the last 25 years a huge right-wing media entertainment sphere um, that is supposed to provide the balance, and yet the level of lying and blatant disinformation that comes out of these new right-wing outlets is just, it just dwarfs anything that came out of the old line left-leaning media, and um, I just find the conversation a little bit one-sided. Of course, and, you know, I, I totally, uh, I'm on board with Bill's way of trying to frame this in terms of a broader problem of kind of the spread of sloppiness and, and sometimes deliberate disinformation uh, from ostensible news outlets, but I also think it's important to remember that the real uh, impetus for this, now Eugene Velo can, can clarify this by telling us after I've, I've finished making my point about whether there is actually a longer uh, legal critique that precedes this event. But I, I called up here because I remember this story vividly at the time. There, I'm looking at a story from uh, Politico. February 26th, 2016, headline, Donald Trump, colon, we're going to, quote, open up libel laws. I remember when he started saying that uh, during the Republican debates, uh, and I remember thinking at the time, what the hell is he talking about? What, what, I've never heard any Republican ever talk about, you know what the list of problems of America are? Now the top is our libel laws are too restrictive. I can't sue enough people for saying things I don't like. Well, why was he saying it? Because this is the way Trump has run his business. He, he runs a very shady series of businesses, and in order to get away with what he gets away with, he threatens and then actually does sue lots and lots of people. And that keeps them in line. And his vision of the American public life will be one in which any time a mainstream media outlet says something about a Republican that Republicans don't like, they will either sue or threaten to sue them to get them to shut up. And as we've seen with a lot of the cancel culture stuff, we know that corporations are very, very concerned with the bottom line and will button their mouths cut, uh, you know, cut uh, contracts with people that they're dealing with if they're afraid that those people will bring them uh, financial uh, pain. And so this is a way of getting the critics to shut up about the right. And the fact that after Trump got elected, the mainstream media actually made his case for him far better is, well, that's the dialectics of our populist age. And we've seen it on multiple fronts where Trump says something that sounds totally outrageous. And then in reaction, his opponents confirm the validity of his initial uh, provocation. But the fact is, this is a made up problem in my view. This is made up by a media ecosystem and its political 
defenders and those who benefit from it who want to bully an independent press even more than they already do. So I have really no sympathy for this whole uh, reformist move. And the fact that we now have judges and Supreme Court justices coming along is another sign of how Trump has managed to shift the terms of debate on a whole range of issues. Can I chime in there? Because uh, I think it may be helpful to think a little bit about the facts of the McKee versus Cosby case, which is where Justice Thomas uh, expressed his skepticism about New York Times v. Sullivan. So what happened was Cosby there uh, was Bill Cosby. And even though it's framed as McKee versus Cosby, uh, um, uh, 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 I'm I'm sorry, Uh, it's McKee versus Cosby in the Supreme Court uh, because Cosby uh, had, uh, uh, in response to an accusation against him of rape by Catherine McKee, uh, basically called her a liar. Uh, and uh, she sued for libel. And her case was thrown out because she was a limited-purpose public figure. I don't see Donald Trump within a mile of, uh, of that one, except insofar as to the extent that Trump has been accused himself of uh, uh, sexual misconduct. He might be viewed as more like Cosby in this respect, right? Uh, um, so Justice Thomas wasn't chiming in on this because, or at least on the face of the case, it didn't have anything to do with Democrat versus Republican issues. It had to do with the question of whether traditional, and to Thomas, tradition matters a lot and original meaning matters a lot, whether traditional rights to recover uh, for injury to reputation um, uh, should be restricted by the First Amendment, and if so, how much. And indeed, this debate is much older than 2016 on the court. As I mentioned, Justice White had been beating this drum since at least the uh, mid-1970s. And uh, and, uh, uh, likewise, there had been some other, some conservative justices, Chief Justice Berger and Justice uh, Rehnquist, who had uh, made similar uh, arguments. Uh, uh, In fact, interestingly, one decision cutting back in some measure in New York Times v. Sullivan, or perhaps not extending it further, was a Gertz v. Robert Welch, where the, the defendants uh, were uh, a John Birch Society publication, so an ultra-conservative publication, uh, who were accused of libeling this uh, uh, lawyer who, uh, who had actually was, uh, was, uh, had sued a police officer. Uh, for uh, uh, for police brutality. And the John Birch Society was accused of libeling him, and it was mostly the conservatives on the court uh, who said this is a, a, uh, uh, th- this is a, a kind of libel claim that should be able to go forward, not subject to the actual malice test because this lawyer isn't really a public figure. So, you know, uh, Donald Trump was a political animal, and everything he does is for political reasons. Uh, um, uh, but uh, this debate about uh, what the right balance is between the reputation and free speech. And again, I am actually more on the traditional Justice Brennan side of this debate. Uh, he was the author of New York Times v. Sullivan, saying there ought to be very broad protection for, for free press. I'm skeptical of Justice Thomas's position, but it's not, about, uh, it's not about politics as such. And as we see in the Dominion case, it could be very well liberals suing conservative media and conservative speakers. Uh, can I just uh, chime in with one question? Isn't that, uh, based on your description, the McKee case, isn't that an example of somebody who was wrongly held to be a public figure? I mean, there, she, you know, because she was libeled and defended herself, therefore she became a public figure? Well, you agree then with Justice Thomas, because that was part of what he said. Part of what he said was uh, that it, that uh, uh, she shouldn't be viewed as a public figure. Uh, but uh, um, uh, but on top of that, he said also part of the problem is this entire public figure, private figure edifice that uh, the court has built up. I, I will say, though, remember, McKee versus Cosby, McKee had accused Cosby of raping her some decades before. The statute of limitation had passed, so he couldn't be prosecuted for that. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, she she uh, she thought at least she could go public with it. So there, that what made her a public figure is that she deliberately sought out media attention for her positions, mm-hmm. uh, and that's and under the court's case law, that's a perfectly plausible uh, uh, plausible result. But again, um, we I'm seeing a lot of libel cases in these kinds of uh, uh, um, claims of sexual uh, sexual uh, assault, sexual harassment, and the like. Sometimes it is people who say I was falsely accused of sexual assault, suing their accuser. 
Sometimes it is people who say that that they were uh, they were indeed assaulted, and then the uh, assaulter denied it publicly in a way that is itself libelous. There's a vast range of libel cases out there. A few of them are highly political, but really very few. Uh, by and large, these are cases where you've got individuals or businesses uh, who claim their reputation had been had been injured, often for non-political reasons, and and even when it's political, it's often not sort of sharp uh, uh, left right. And uh, uh, to, to to focus just on kind of the highest profile issues, which are often are the political ones, because that's what hits the news, I think uh, misses the big picture. Okay, um, I see Linda and Bill both wanted to get in on this topic, but, you know, we're running long and we need to get to our third subject. So unless you have a really short comment, I would say let's save that and and move forward. Um, Okay, Uh, we have seen over the last uh, few months that uh, in a number of states, Republicans are passing anti-riot legislation. At least three states uh, have done so. Most recently, Florida. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, signed the Combating Public Disorder Act, uh, which will um, broaden the definition of what a riot is um, and will um, include, uh, in a couple of cases, some of these laws have even included uh, details like um, providing, well, two states want to provide immunity for drivers who who strike pedestrians who are blocking a roadway. Um, in Florida, it would just, um, I guess, um, uh Let's see. the The Florida case doesn't doesn't give them immunity, but it uh, it, it changes the. Uh, 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 let's see. It tones down to to uh, minimize civil liability uh, for the offense. Um, so um, so let's begin with you this time, Damon. Um, what uh, you know? Do, what do you make of uh, these? anti-riot bills. The ACLU says that they are attempting to criminalize uh, free speech and protest. Well, I mean, I guess it harmonizes with the point I was trying to make about opening up libel laws, that this is, again, the kind of Trumpification of the conservative side of our debates. Um, A general irritation with Uh, what happens when you have a kind of maximally libertarian public square where people can say what they want, even at the risk of uh, transgressing uh, the truth and what opponents believe is right. And then in this case, uh, public protest. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, let me be clear. I'm very anti-riot. I don't like riots. I don't like burning down stores and people's businesses and homes and parts of cities. I think it's terribly counterproductive and it violates rights and laws in all kinds of ways. And I think it should be prosecuted. I think what Portland permits to happen on its streets uh, so very often, sometimes every single day for months on end, is, is an outrage and should be stopped under existing laws, which it could be. Um, But these new laws are attempts to both court favor with members of the right who are are kind of uh, up in arms and outraged about uh, the unrest of the past year and then uh, to to kind of claim the mantle of being tough law and order people. And when it comes to DeSantis, very much plays into his hopes for 2024 as a presidential candidate to anoint himself successor to Trump. Um, and so I think it's, uh, on the whole, it's it's bad. It's, it's like Trump's uh, invocation of opening up libel laws in order, I think, to quash critics uh, preemptively, uh, I think this is an attempt to uh, create an incentive structure where people will be more uh, inclined to not go out and protest for fear of, say, being, I don't know, run over by a car, where uh, where the, the person who does it, uh, as you said about the Florida change, uh, Mona, uh, could could result in them the, the driver doing it, thinking, ah, I'll get away with this. Uh, they won't be able to sue me for it because I'm now protected. 
uh, to to run down a protester who's blocking my path in traffic. And again, let me be clear that I don't love when protesters shut down roads and highways for the sake of a protest. I think it's very easy for protests to uh, backfire in terms of public opinion uh, by inconveniencing people. I often think that protests are about blowing off steam more than actually changing anybody's mind. It's not the way I prefer politics to be done. I'm not a romantic about street protests and their efficacy. But it is, in my view, a mark of a truly open society, a liberal society, that you have a very open public square with robust speech and uh, rights for speech and demonstration and expression of political dissent. And I bristle at the notion of narrowing those standards. Professor Volokh, there are laws on the books um, that prohibit arson, that prohibit uh, uh, property destruction, uh, that prohibit uh, assaulting police officers. Many of these things. Um, do we need more laws on on those subjects, or what's your view? You know, I think it's really hard to answer this in the abstract, right? Uh, that uh, there's always a question of what's the best way of enforcing the laws, what, how, what the penalties should be for uh, for various crimes, how various crimes should be defined. Uh, I, I totally agree that riot is an extraordinarily uh, it tends to involve extraordinarily serious crimes, which cause extraordinary damage and lasting damage to the communities, including completely innocent members of the community. Uh, and I also think that uh, that protests uh, are constitutionally protected and must remain constitutionally protected. Uh, but there is a difference between riot and protest. Riot generally involves violence. Uh, the Florida law, for example, is targeted at, at uh, uh, riots that involve not just crime but violence. Um, and uh, uh, whether, whether it's an improvement over existing Florida law or worse than existing Florida law or doesn't really make much of a difference existing Florida law, I think you'd need to look closely at the existing uh, scheme and how well it's being enforced and, and the like. I'll give an example. There's a provision in the new statute, uh, in the new bill, uh, that criminalizes mob intimidation. And that makes it a crime to use force or threat of force to compel or induce another person to do something or to maintain a politic- particular viewpoint, to kind of say something, you know? Is that already criminal under Florida law? Maybe, under certain circumstances, uh, probably. Uh, but is it a good idea to make it make it expressly a crime? It may very well be. Uh, so, so it's hard to talk in the abstract, do we need more laws? It may vary from state to state. It may vary on the particular, uh, based on the particular law that's being proposed. Um, as to the civil immunity, which is a, a relatively new thing, um, uh, although not entirely new. Uh, uh, what it says essentially is that if somebody is involved in rioting, not just in protests, but in rioting, and riot is defined as be, being basically involved with other people uh, to engage in violence or threat of violence, essentially, um, then in that case, uh, uh, they are uh, cannot recover civil damages if they're injured in the course of this rioting. There could still be a criminal prosecution against the injurer, but they can't recover civil damages. You know, that I think reflects in some measure existing standards that uh, generally speaking in a civil case, you're going to have uh, 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 at least a lot of defenses, say, in a negligence action uh, against somebody who is is, uh, 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 himself acting criminally. Defendants who are criminals rarely prevail in these kinds, excuse me, plaintiffs who are themselves criminals rarely prevail in these kinds of cases. But also it adds to the reality that a lot of people who, when they're surrounded by an angry mob who's not letting their car go forward or often even go backwards, they really feel themselves understandably threatened, thinking back on things like the Reginald Denny beating and various other such incidents. So in some measure, I think it's a recognition of a desire on the part of many people for a sort of self-defense against what is perceived as a kind of kidnapping with threat of, uh, with threat of violence. So whether that's a good idea or not, that's worth talking about. But I think at the end, it's hard to talk in general about whether anti-riot laws are or are not a good idea uh, uh, without looking looking specifically at each particular provision and how it compares to existing rules in that state. 
Linda, you uh, had your hand up. <laughs> yes, well, uh, uh, let's just say I have a, a totally different view of this. These laws are not being passed in a vacuum. They are being passed because of what we have experienced over the last several years. And by the way, it didn't just begin uh, with the protests after the, the George uh, Floyd killing. Uh, if you go back to the Charlottesville uh, protest, uh, where you had uh, competing groups of some sort of neo-fascist uh, groups wanting to protect uh, Confederate statues, um, and uh, you had others who wanted to see those statues come down. Uh, these turned into uh, violent uh, protests, and a, a man uh, ran his car into a crowd of protesters, killing uh, Heather Heyer uh, in 2017. So, you know, we, we've had these kinds of incidents, and to suggest that, that somehow this is just a sober rethinking about whether or not, uh, you know, likening it to the Reginald Denny killing, which for listeners who are not old enough to remember this, this was during the L.A. riots. I believe it was 1989, 1991, sometime in that time fr uh, framework after um, – the Rodney King uh, beating had had uh, occurred, and and uh, there were widespread uh, riots in, in the city of Los Angeles, and a truck driver found himself uh, in South Central Los Angeles was taken from his uh, truck and very badly beaten uh, during that. I you know these laws are not being passed because of that kind of outrageous incident. They are being passed as a way to try to deter people from taking to the streets uh, and protesting. And uh, I, you know, there already is a lawsuit that has been filed uh, in the Florida uh, uh, law that has just been passed. A, a lawyer's group has filed suit in federal court alleging that um, that new law is unconstitutional, and I'm sure there will be others. But I just think it's disingenuous to suggest that somehow this is well-considered legislation that's maybe closing some loopholes where people are getting away with um, bad behavior and there's no way uh, to prosecute them. There are plenty of ways of prosecuting people who are actually committing violence, who are actually uh, interfering with the rights of others. And these laws um, seem to have a totally political purpose, and it is sort of interesting that they are only occurring in states where Republicans are in control, and it's kind of a backlash to the kind of social protest we've been seeing, and, and we have to recognize it as that. Bill Galston, uh, one feature of this legislation in Florida is that it will make taking down a monument, uh, even a flag, I imagine, uh, a second-degree felony uh, with up to 15 in years in prison attached, which would make it uh, akin to the crime of rape. Um, now, you know, the, the left comes under a lot of um, criticism, and deservedly so, for saying that speech is violence. Um, and yet this Republican law basically is saying that symbolic speech, tearing down a statue, now admittedly one shouldn't tear down statues, I'm against uh, iconoclasm, but, uh, but, but to say that it is a, is a crime that it should be punished with, with such um, severe penalties comparable to, to a violent felony is, uh, is really the, the right adopting the same position as the far left, saying, yep, speech is violence. Well, I have to say that when when statues of Lenin and Stalin came tumbling down in the late 80s <laughs> and early 90s, I sort of liked iconoclasm. Well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm not against it. I'm not against it across the board. Look, we can... We can argue about the details, but this is this is a very old story. Uh, two wrongs usually make things wronger, and this case that we're now or this question that we're now discussing is no exception. I noted with interest that uh, a member of the Florida legislature, in arguing for this legislation, said, "We don't want Florida to turn into Seattle." And we don't want Florida to turn into 
forklift. Uh, and what we had in those two cases was the failure of city governments who were sympathetic to the protesters from enforcing laws that were already on the books. And that, in my judgment, is 99% of the problem. Uh, it, except at the margins, we don't need new laws. We need we need gov municipal governments and governments at every level who are, purport, who are prepared to draw a bright line between permissible forms of protest on the other and violence on the one hand and violence on the other. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, it invites excessive reactions such as we're now seeing spreading across the country. Uh, and, and politicians who don't speak up in favor of enforcing the laws that etch that bright line are sowing the wind, I'm afraid, and we are now reaping the whirlwind. Uh, we, cannot, we, we cannot treat protests based on our sympathy for the object or the goal of the protest without risking a huge backlash, which is what we're getting. All right. We now come to the segment of the program where we highlight or lowlight something that uh, from the past week. And Linda Chavez, let's start with you. All right. Well, I'm going to point to an article that appeared this week in the New York Times uh, by Thomas Edsel. Uh, it's called Why Trump is Still Their Guy. Um, it goes into the uh, role that Trump still plays in the Republican Party. But what makes this article somewhat different than just sort of going through talking about the stranglehold that uh, Donald Trump still holds on the Republican Party is it points to some very interesting academic studies uh, that look at the question of collective victimhood. And uh, as we've talked about on the show many times, uh, many of Trump supporters feel that they are victims uh, and they feel that they are being replaced. Tucker Carlson uh, plays into this theme often, that they are being replaced by people uh, less worthy than themselves. And uh, what uh, Edsel does in this piece is to talk about some studies on the, the notion of dominant group victimhood. And I've, I recommend it. Um, there are some links to some long scholarly pieces, which I followed, and I would recommend the same to our listeners. Thomas Edsel is always worth reading. Thank you. Damon Linker. Well, I'm going to do what I've been doing more and more lately in this segment, and that's point to a substack. Uh, and I, I promise it is not because I am strange and read a lot of substacks. It's that... People link to things, and it ends up being on Substack, and it's just, a, I think, a fact that some of the most interesting stuff is being done on that platform because it permits people to uh, write outside of the somewhat narrow strictures that a lot of journalistic outlets these days. So my selection this time is um, a long post by a guy I've never heard of before named Richard Hanania. Uh, he apparently is a research fellow at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Wow, who knew? Um, he has a piece titled, Why is Everything Liberal? And it's really, really good. A very interesting attempt to apply kind of... Excuse me for one yeah. second, Damon. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Jim Swift, I'm getting a red pop-up. Problem saving local backup of audio. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry, Damon. That's fine. I'll back up a sentence or two. So. Okay. So, yeah, that's Richard Henania, who I uh, had uh, never heard of before. Uh, it sounds like an interesting guy, but this piece is titled, Why is Everything Liberal? And it's really interesting. Uh, the subtitle gives you a sense of where he's coming from. Cardinal preferences explain why all institutions are woke. Um, this is basically an attempt to apply 
kind of vaguely game theoretic uh, ideas. Uh, there's no math in it, though, I promise. To the question <laughs> of why so many institutions in American life lean left. And the short answer is that basically um, that uh, the more powerful political faction will always be the one that has the more passionate activists in it. And there are simply more passionate activists on the left than on the right. And this should make a kind of intuitive sense. One of the uh, views of conservatives, whether of the old-fashioned kind or the more Trumpian populist kind, is that in the scheme of life, politics is not the most important thing. Other spheres of life are more important, business, family, uh, faith, things like that. Well, that translates into the fact that, that there are simply fewer people on the right who make politics the most important thing. And back it up with donations to parties and, and movements and also behavior in various ways in their lives and within institutions. And so the end result is that the left takes over more institutions that it gets involved with because there are more people who care enough to try to do exactly that. So very interesting, very stimulating, uh, and definitely worth thinking with and perhaps against, but again, as, as a go to thinking, it's great. Excellent. Uh, Professor Bullock, we don't require our guests to have a highlight or low light, but if you have one, you're, you're sure. up now. Sure. So there's a story in the news about a uh, police lieutenant who works in internal affairs or worked in internal affairs for the Norfolk, Virginia Police Department, who was fired because it came out as a result of what seems to have been a hack of a crowdfunding site, that he donated $25 to the defense fund for Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse, of course, is uh, being prosecuted for murder because he, at one of these protests, he shot a couple of people. He claims it's self-defense. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, there hasn't been a trial yet. And this uh, police lieutenant was funding uh, was helping fund, again, to the tune of $25, the defense. And, of course, in America, everybody has a right to, to hire a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, the, uh, the officer also included a message that says, God bless, thank you for your courage, keep your head up, you've done nothing wrong. Uh, now this has come out, and now this officer is fired. And the one thing the, the, that keeps coming back for me is, you could imagine exactly this happening in 1950 with somebody who works for a police department or elsewhere, uh, contributing money to someone who was uh, who's being prosecuted for committing some crime who's on the communist side or who was seen as uh, as a as a communist or a maybe communist or whatever else and somebody in 1950 thinks this person really isn't a communist or thinks this person isn't really guilty so he figures I'm going to do what I can to to do what to just fund this guy's criminal defense which again everybody's entitled to would have been fired then because of the blacklist uh, and the, so the surrounding uh, surrounding uh, Red Scare being fired now. Now, you know, maybe on balance this should tell us that uh, the conventional wisdom about the McCarthy era may be not quite right. Maybe, in fact, it makes sense that we want to make sure that people who work for the government and are in positions of authority aren't sympathizers to a murderous uh, uh, democracy-destroying regime. Uh, maybe it makes sense today that any time a police officer supports somebody who's perceived as uh, as a criminal, uh, even though, again, there's been no criminal trial yet, or is perceived as racist, uh, uh, then that person should be fired, or maybe it should be limited to police lieutenants. You can imagine that distinction. But the message that's coming out from this, it seems to me, to, to the public at large, is better not say anything, better not give any money to any cause that might get you tarred this way. Um, in, even if you're trying to do it um, anonymously and confidentially, there are hackers who might break in. Then it gets publicized, then it's on the news, and then you lose your job. And not only do you lose your job, presumably, once it's in the news, you don't get another one either. So we are seeing in many ways, not exactly the same, nothing is ever exactly the same as in history, but we're seeing in many ways a replay of parts of the 1950s with blacklists, uh, with, with uh, uh, creeping uh, definitions, where communist became communist sympathizer, became fellow traveler, became anybody who's roughly on the left, just like with racist and white supremacists being redefined to cover a very wide range, a wide, wide range of ideas. Um, and, you know, again, we could say maybe that's worthwhile. Maybe we don't want 
criminal punishment for bad ideas, but we do want social ostracism and professional destruction. Maybe, maybe. Uh, but it's interesting to see just how much of today is an echo of that, that aspect in the 1950s. Thank you. Bill Galston. Yeah, a uh, former colleague of mine at Brookings uh, named Jeremy Shapiro, uh, who's now a senior official in a European think tank, uh, just published a very interesting article in Foreign Affairs, uh, the thrust of which is that the Biden administration, sooner or later, is going to have to make some choices in foreign policy that it has refrained from making up to now. Uh, he specifically poses the following question. If, the, if Joe Biden has promised a foreign policy for the middle class, is that compatible with the traditional assertion of American leadership around the world, uh, which calls upon us to do many things that may not serve in any direct way or may even undercut the interests of certain portions of American society, like the middle class. And Jeremy's point is very simple. I'm not sure I agree with his bottom line, but his point is simple. Uh, in this, as in other areas, the Biden administration has adopted an all-of-the-above declaratory strategy that glides over the fact that, are that there are fundamental tensions or even contradictions among pieces of what Joe Biden, the candidate, and the president has pledged to do. And at some point, choices will be unavoidable, and it's not clear that the administration is ready to make them. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to hail a piece uh, that appeared in the Washington Post by Cornell West and Jeremy, uh, uh, let's see, I didn't get his last name, Jeremy Tate, there it is. Um, it's called Howard University's Removal of Classics is a Spiritual Catastrophe. So Howard University, arguably the leading historically black college in the United States, has decided to disband its classics department. Um, and uh, West and Tate write, um, Frederick Douglass risked mockery, abuse, beating, and even death to study the likes of Socrates, Cato, and Cicero. They note that Martin Luther King Jr. included three references to Socrates in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, and, and they go on to say, look, um, this is not happening in a vacuum. This is the result of a massive failure in this nation to substitute what they say is schooling for education. That is, you know, just the mere acquisition of skills and jargon and they say schooling is not education. Education draws out the uniqueness of people to be all that they can be in the light of their irreducible singularity. It is the maturation and cultivation of spiritually intact and morally equipped human beings. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, hope that Howard will uh, reconsider the, uh, it, this would be a, a tragedy for uh, education in general, so. Um, with that, I want to thank our guest, Professor Eugene Bullock. I want to thank all of you for listening, and we will return next week as every week.